Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Start and pause and move together. We're on. Yeah. All right. Well, tire in the road. Ah. Hi, Nathan. Hello, Colby. We're doing a we're doing a drive pod, car pod. We're on our way up to Steamboat. Could, the boat. could you call this a thin air pod? Thin air pod? Yeah, or a high pod because we're at altitude. We're, we're at elevation, rather. We're at elevation, yes. Good catch. Scientific terminology. Yep. You know, I've, I've actually really enjoyed being smarter than people for like a small minute explaining that situation. And then they're like, no, that's wrong. We're doing altitude training. And you're like, no, 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 no. no. Google, what is altitude? It's yes. like, oh, it's a distance above the earth in the air. <laughs> what is elevation? Distance on land above sea level. Voila. Et voila. Science. Et voila. JB used to hang people up on that all the time because one of his little pet peeves is when he says people go to altitude or elevation, whatever term they have to use, and they say, I can't ride as fast up here because there's less oxygen. But of course, the percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere remains the same. The atmospheric pressure is simply lower. Now, I would have to nitpick with him a lot on this because if you took a square meter of space, there would actually be less oxygen molecules in that space. But the percentage would be the same. So by percent, his point is, I think it's 21.3 or something. I don't remember, but I'd say one of my pet peeves is JV's pet peeves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sure he listens to my podcast regularly, so <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he does. <laughs> no, he did one. He was one and done. He, he, he recorded one and then checked out. I could imagine him actually just doing like naked hot room yoga, listening to your podcast in the background. <laughs> Being like, oh, I haven't told Colt about how deep I want to stretch. <laughs> you heard it here first. It's it could, it, That could be a thing. That could be a thing. I wouldn't be surprised. So, although Jimmy's lifting more weights than I think he is doing yoga these days. Good for him. Yeah, he's lifting quite a bit of weight. It, like, he can, he can squat and deadlift more than I can, which is a little annoying, actually. Because he's, he was the dweepy little climber. 
I used to crush him in the weight room when we were 18. Yeah, right. I used to crush him. But I will probably throw down and say I have more functional fitness than him. Like, I, if I gave him a kettlebell and asked him to do a set of, like, 50 double-handed swings and swing squats, he might he might really hurt himself. I don't know. I haven't asked him to do that. Yeah, but, like, your finger strength. Like, in a, if you guys did a thumb war, he would win for sure because <laughs> the amount he tweets. <laughs> He's got a really, really strong thumb. That's probably true. That's That's probably true. Um, but no, I think that's actually not, not saying he's old, but like aging, man, it's really important to actually be in the gym and actually put big For sure. amount of force through your body and yes. keep those pick up heavy things, male hormones rocking and doing their thing. So good for him that he's yep. made that switch from or female hormones, keep the bone density strong. Well, right. Right. Yeah. But hang on. It's not males keep their bone density strong through testosterone as opposed to estrogen. No. Correct, correct. But my point is, of what I was trying to say is, if you're a lady, it's important to pick up heavy objects. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But they, should, but they should be doing that anyway, right? Um, yes. But I, I just think for aging men, you know, you see that like flat dad butt thing going on and you're just totally. like, whoa, chronic low testosterone, mm. Uh, mm. go lift some weights, dude. Or the heart-shaped ass. Same problem that I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? Paul talks about Totally. That. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Uh, that's the... Heart-shaped ass is a result of the overdeveloped glute mead, which is the stabilizer, but the underdeveloped glute max. So you get this little heart-shaped bottom. Is that like the red hot chili pepper sock heart-shaped box? I don't know. <laughs> is it? Maybe that's what they're talking about. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. Maybe it's I, a euphemism. Maybe. I'm not sure about. I rarely know when euphemisms are euphemisms. I just take it literally. It's just the way my brain thinks. So you don't do sarcasm. Terrible at it. Never. I'm never sarcastic. Yeah. Is that sarcastic right there? <laughs> Is that sarcasm? Definitely not. So um, let's let's give people some context. We're on our way up to the boat. We've got, we've got a couple hours to kill. Or if, or if you're not North American and in Gravel World. Steamboat um, Colorado. We're going to Steamboat Colorado for a, a bike race I'm doing called Steamboat. <laughs> yes. A pretty imaginative name there. But they actually call it like SBTGR. It's one of those things that's like, uh, there's no vowels. Yeah. Too cool for vowels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're, we're on the way. Um, we've done a few podcasts together and I think a lot of the time we go in with a lot of structure and that's, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But I'm super jet lagged. Um, trying to get as much sun into my eyeballs to keep me awake as possible. Yes. I'm also coming from sea level and we're doing, we did a beautiful bike ride today, but we went up to basically 2,800 meters. So in, in freedom units, that's like, <laughs> what do we call it? 9,000 or 8,500 feet? Probably 9,000. Yeah, we were up to about 9. Um, yeah. Which was to get a bit of acclimatization. So I'm, I'm not feeling my fully focused self, but super down for a conversation. And uh, I think we, we have coffee or do stuff together a lot of the time. Like, we should have recorded that. That was... That was funny. <laughs> Why did we just go? Did we just solve the problems of the universe. So I guess what we're here to do today is to solve the problems of the universe. Now we're actually recording yeah. that. Pressure's on. Yeah, but is it sort of like that thing where, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, right? No one's there to observe it. Did it happen? Yeah. Um, did anyone hear it? Maybe because there is an observer, our tree's not going to fall in the woods. It's definitely but possible. We'll see. We can still claim that it fell and that people heard it. That's uh, like a sudden cone. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Right. <laughs> That's the sound. I can do it. <laughs> That's no cone. I solved that right away. 
Uh, so I think for, for everyone listening, I don't think we know what we're going to talk about. So bear with us. Well, we sort our shit out. Well, we sort our shit out. We'll, we'll get some tangents going. Yeah. I like tangents sometimes. They're good. <clears throat> okay, let's let's start with Bike Darkness. Tell us about your kit and your Colnago and your Ekar for this for this race and your tire choice. We'll, we'll start with dorky stuff. And then in about three minutes, we'll get off on some philosophical tangent. All right. I like it. Um, right. So I did a bit of a funny project this year. You know, I moved across from 10 years in the world tour on road, um, which is where I met Colby. That's how we know each other. He was my coach for a very, very, very long time. In fact, and um, you know, this year was the universe was calling me to do some kind of transition and all things were calling me towards gravel. It's been, it's been really fun. And, uh, again, I was really blessed to have made some really good friends and also didn't sort of like do anything too controversial throughout my whole career to never be seen as someone that's like not good for a brand. So I had a lot of opportunities to work with some really amazing companies this year and, and going forward. Um, and, you know, my biggest partners being uh, Colnago and Castelli and Campagnolo, um, come to tires and stuff like that. Uh, you picked some good partners, man. Yeah, well, it all came together really nicely. Um, and again, it, it actually felt like it was supposed to happen because it actually happened quite easily, which was which was cool. Um, but this thing happened where all of a sudden, when it took us a while to actually work out who was the person that made this project become what it was to become. But we somehow fell into this thing where we're making five different kits and five different bikes and they kind of built around each other, which sounds like not much work, but it's actually been, <laughs> it's probably been a good half of my year so far, making sure uh-huh. these things are going around. But um, we, we sort of sat down and, and I tried to involve as many friends and people that have been part of my bike world into this because, you know, I, I always feel that um, experiences are made better when they're shared with people that are, you know, a big part of your life and, and it makes people a bigger part of your life. And, and my good friend Richard Pierce, who's an amazing architect but has worked in cycling and design for a long time, he's, he's basically the whole vision aesthetically behind Chapter 3 at the start of the company and... Um, I don't know if people remember David Miller's different design shoes in 2014. Every race he had different shoes. That was cool. That was cool. He did an amazing thing there. And um, he designed the Sky Kit one year when it was all the stripes. Oh, um, I didn't know that. There was a lot of story involved. Mm-hmm. Um, that was when they first went to Castelli. So he was their <laughs> head designer at that point for, for that project. Okay. Um, but I was lucky enough to speak with Richard and I was like, Richard, is there any chance you'd like to get involved? And then it, it sort of just snowballed into this huge project. But then Richard being an architect, you know, there's always a story behind uh, what happens. It's not ever just designed for pure aesthetics. It has to have meaning, which yeah. which was a really fun thing. And, uh, you know, my background was that I started on mountain biking then I went to road and now I've sort of come to gravel. And, and he was like, for me, it feels like a bit of a full circle. So the, the project mm-hmm. title for this year was that it was a full circle. So everything's had a bit of a theme in it. Mm-hmm. And each one of my jerseys so far has been a variation, so to speak, of the full circle concept. And that the circle is actually slowly growing from gravel um, 
the little slither that was beginning with the circle of that. It's, it's starting to come to um, almost to a 360 now that my first year is over. Uh, but also he did this crazy thing where he actually went through all of my results from mountain biking, all through road, uh, and now into gravel, the start of gravel, where uh, he made, think of like the arrondissement in Paris, you know, like a circles around each other, but like dots uh-huh. forming in, how would you describe that? Um, yeah, like a circle of exploding dots, maybe? Yeah, but or it's... A galaxy, totally. A galaxy, yeah, yeah. sort of like its own galaxy. Yeah. They started a smaller circle and it sort of builds its way up. It's, it's like wrapped around like toilet paper, you know? <laughs> um, but each one of those dots represents race days and they're colored differently, whether I got, you know, a top five or a podium or a win or a teammate won a big race mm-hmm. or it's just a race that meant a lot to me, like, you know, racing the Tour de France or the Commonwealth Games or World Championships for Australia. So we have the main design of the jersey, but then actually just has like an extra texture layer. Uh, we have this story that no one else would understand, but I can more or less look at it when I see gatherings and groupings of different colors. I'm like, ah, that was when we, you know, we were a tour of Beijing and we won four stages. And, you know, straight after that, I won the Japan Cup and blah, blah, blah. So for me, it's also got this um, nice sort of history of what I have done built into something that uh, we feel is very forward-looking and, um, you know, back to being dream-orientated for me. So it's been really fun, and Colnago and Castelli, we've done a lot of work this year to get designs going, and we're in Steamboat, and I've got to bike and kit design number four. Um, so they're doing five kits and bikes for you this season, right, Colnago and Castelli? Correct. So we're on number four? This is number four. And What's the last one for Gravel World? Uh, yeah, but not American Gravel Worlds, the right. actual UCI Gravel World. Real, real Gravel Worlds? Well... Yeah, no I mean, offense I, anyone is going to America. I, I don't worlds. really want to shit on that, but you know, yeah. I love baseball. I really love baseball, but the team I go for is the Blue Jays, and it's not because they're a good team. It's because they're the only team that's not actually from America in the World Series. Ah. And it's for me the only reason why they can actually call it a World Series because it's the only international team. Right. Otherwise, you just call it the American America. Baseball Championships, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and and I find it kind of a little bit funny that um, there is a race called Gravel Worlds mm-hmm. when. You know, it's always going to be in the same place. And World Championships, basically only sport, that title needs to be raced or played all around the world, right? Otherwise, right. it's actually just a local race with an uh, inflated sense of self. So um, not to shit on the race or anything, and, and certainly not to talk about but I I find it just funny that it's called Gravel Worlds and then you know, people paint their bike in UCI World Championship colors when, you know, yeah, it's definitely not the world's. Right. Big race, cold gravel world, but yeah, the fifth bike for us is actually going to be the UCI World Championships. Okay. And when and where are those? Those are somewhere in the start of October. Uh-huh. Um, and it's in Veneto region of Italy, so like just near Venice. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think the course has been released yet. The, the, um, the main organizer of the guys sort of behind it's actually Pippo Pizzato, which is, yeah, which is kind of cool and funny, so... <laughs> Um, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a, a big deal because um, there's going to be a lot of world tour riders also coming to the event. And for me, I'm just a huge proponent of gravel becoming bigger or taken more seriously. So I think this world championship race is going to be, you know, 
you know, imagine if guys like Van Aert and Pitcock come, you know, right. <laughs> it's right. like, you know, they were kind of the guys that ran away from leaving the world tour because they want <laughs> everything. And now I'm like, okay, cool. Come on over guys. But, um, maybe that's why I go to the gravel worlds here in America, right? <laughs> Get away from those Get guys. Get away from those guys. This is the first year that the UCI's had a gravel world championships, correct? Yeah, and also the gravel world cup series. Right. Um, which I've actually based most of my season around. Okay. Um, for for many reasons, but um, they've been really fun, but it's definitely a space that could and should grow mm. to be even better, 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 more better, more better. Okay. So that's the story, a bit of the kit, and then Colnago matches the bike. So you do a new kit uh, five times this year, correct? And they've all got the same, a similar theme of the spheres, the music of the spheres. So uh, to speak. Well, they're all within the concept overall of the full circle. Okay. Um, but uh, it's hard to actually talk about these without showing them. You know, maybe you can upload some of them onto show notes. We'll, but let's put some, some show notes and on the Instagram. We'll, we'll do some. Artwork photos. Yeah, that's cool. You. Yeah, and you know, people you know what? Maybe we can actually just do a small description underneath all sure. of them because that it might go a little bit long and I might sound a little bit yeah um, confused. But anyway, they're all they're all very different jerseys, um, but the underlying design through them is circles um, building and also being um, broken down and changed form, but they're still taking on um, you know the same sort of shapes that a circle would make if they were overlaid or bent over each other. So there's, there is, there is more meaning behind each one than it looks like. Um, but I also think they look really nice. Yeah. That's the, that's been, that's been the nice thing is when someone says it's a nice kid, I'm like, thank you. But you know, deep down, I'm also like, well, it's also telling us a big story to me. And I think that, um, we're always trying to find a little meaning in what we do. I agree. That's cool. I like the idea that, that it looks nice, but it also has a little bit more meaning. It's not just arbitrary design. I mean, but there's certainly lots of beautiful random objects in the world, but it has significance. You know, in this case, it's uh, a tribute to the work you've done on the bike in the different phases of your career. That's pretty cool because it has historical significance for you. Yeah, and um, the Castelli is actually opening a store, mm. like a flagship store in Europe. We're actually going to display all of the five jerseys and, and cool. a few of the bikes will be there. Okay. And then Colnago is actually displaying all five bikes in their museum. This is sort of the first year that they've really tackled gravel racing as a as a brand. Um, so we've had a lot of fun and, and we're going to also have the jerseys alongside the bikes there. So. And whereabouts is the Castelli store going to open the flagship store? Actually, it's going to be in Girona, um, unsurprisingly. Yeah. They've got a nice, big, beautiful space that um, interesting. Yeah, okay. should be open in a few months. And cool. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Ah, maybe I'll be there. Por que no? Ah, sí, sí. No, Monsieur Colby. Ah, claro que sí. Sí, no, sí. Eh, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, we might be having, we're having some camps this fall. Details are unannounced, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. But some Team F coaching camps that might happen, and there may be another one in Toronto, but that is, uh, I'm not in charge of that, so other people get to make those decisions, and then I will happily show up and instruct the riders when they happen. So, but they're definitely they're talking about one in Toronto in the fall for sure mm. we'll see what develops well it's interesting to see how that city is developing because you know it used to be very much you know the city where you know professionals move sort of following from the flow and effect from Lance Armstrong being there and really wasn't it Johnny Welts first 
Well, Johnny Wells was, was the pioneer, one that right? was, he was the pioneer. He's, he's actually the godfather of Girona being a cycling city. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad we brought that reference up because that's it's often under um, under recognized. Under recognized. Uh, but you know, Lance was the one that really made it kind of hit home, and, and you know, service courses for different teams were starting to be built there, and then yeah, a lot of riders have you know since moved to Andorra or. Um, and Girona has actually become more of like a cyclotourism city because mm. um, Mallorca, which was always sort of the traditional place that people went and did their like you know cycling training camps and whatnot, there's just not that much going on if you're not staying, um, yeah. you know, right in the middle of town and you know you're staying at these sort of like all-inclusive buffet restaurants and, and what people like is that Girona is now like a hustling, bustling, you know, food culture with cafes and. Cool it's got, and it has the old town. It's fun to explore. It's got this historic appeal. Yeah, but it's it's just <laughs> it's just funny that cycling's never been so big in Girona, but there's never been so few of the top level professionals in the last twenty years living there. So it's flipped, really, right? It used to be kind of the pro hangout. Now there's yeah. more lifestyle people, more people that are going there just to ride or participate in camps or do multi day rides or people are being led on tours, right? But some of the pros are moving out. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think maybe also. <laughs> As a somewhat of a call in, you know, relationship to that influx of people coming in. Yeah, um, yeah. It has become a bit of a has become a bit of a crazy place, but um, I think it's a really amazing area that EF is also um, doing their training camps and, mm-hmm. and using the area. And, and also, I feel that you know, EF is not sort of like you know, culturally appropriating Toronto because actually EF is the derivative of slipstream sports, which was. You know, one of the original teams to actually really call and make Girona uh, their cycling hub and home for their team. So I actually think it's really cool that EF's doing this stuff in Girona. JB lived in Girona for a few years of his early professional career. He was there getting it done, learning all the hard lessons of some of his early Spanish teams. Yeah, totally. uh, Back in the days of Porcelana, Porcelana Santa Clara. Which turned out to be a cocaine front. Hey, cocaine. Yeah. Okay, cocaine, cocaine, cocaine. Cocaine. Yeah, little did he know. He had some interesting stories there. Like, he, he at one point, uh, got on the wrong side of one of the directors, and the guy, the director, had one of the mechanics for the team go and take his bike and bury it. <laughs> so he couldn't race. Yeah, true story. He buried it in, like, in the ground. <laughs> like, you could just take the tires off and you couldn't race with it. And yet. <laughs> like it's weird it feels pretty happening. Mexican cartel or like mafia it's like right you know with a horse's head in your bed it's like yeah. you got a bike I've given you a GPS file you might locate it <laughs> but you will need this shovel <laughs> be prepared to go to unusual extents to actually find it when you're there <laughs> well okay I gotta rewind for one second though this surprised me a bit because I kind of thought this was common knowledge but uh, recently, I've had some client experiences and discussions that have led me to believe that a lot of people don't really know what a service course is. Maybe you could just unpack your version of that. Well, there's actually a lot of language used in cycling, in, in pro cycling, and anyway, I had no idea what it meant. Yeah. Um, because I would have just called it like a team headquarters or a clubhouse or... Which is kind of what know, it is. Bike shed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Giant <laughs> or, garage. Or a massive garage for cars, buses, and bikes. All the bike stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's like... You know, PEF doesn't do it, but a lot of teams use this word called convocation, which is the weirdest thing ever because it's like a communication of your convoy and your 
and your information from a risk. And it's called a convocation. And for me, this was like a totally what? weird word. What is a convocation? Um, and everyone was like, oh, it's, we've updated the convocation. I'm like, what word are you talking about? <laughs> and what is this document called a convocation? I thought it was like somebody getting English wrong, you uh-huh. know, and you're like, oh, it's kind of cute. You know, you think it's a conversation with information. Yeah, but right. no, it's actually a word that's like used in a lot of teams. I don't really know if it's derived from cycling or if it's a real word. I should probably, you know, I'm showing my ignorance here that I didn't actually Google Make it. the etymology. But I was like, well, here we are. This is a weird word. But yeah, service yeah. course yeah. Um, is uh, where a team, it's not necessarily where they're registered. There's a lot of teams that are registered outside of the location of their service course. But the World Tour of Cycling is a Eurocentric sport. Yes, there are races outside of um, Europe, but really cycling is still, first and foremost, mostly a European sport. Yes. Um, and when you kind of look at the three road bigs... Road cycling, for sure. Road cycling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you look at the three bigs, which are the three Grand Tours, Spain, Italy, and France. Um, and then you have the classics, which is predominantly Belgium. And then you have different offshoot races that happen outside of those countries, but they're, they're, they're sort of the exception to the rule is that the best place to have a central hub um, for logistics is somewhere in Spain, France, or Italy. Yeah. And uh, that central hub is um, its basically like an airport hangar in size. It's absolutely massive for all of the teams. There's, um, I'm not going to say thousands of bikes, but there's hundreds of bikes. Usually um, hundreds. Because, you know, each rider, when you really think about it, you have 28 to 32 riders. Um, each bike has, so each team has a sponsor that normally has an aero bike and a climbing bike and then you have to have race bike number one race bike number two an actual third bike as a spare for each of those and then you have a time trial bike yep and then you normally have a spare time trial bike so each rider has about 10 bikes times 280 but then you also just have frames hanging everywhere and it's just literally thousands of wheels because you have every different depth yep. with different tires for different races different widths, different conditions. And there's um, boxes and derailers and crank sets. Yeah, I mean, handlebars and helmets, rows, shelves and shelves of helmets. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the just sort of fast disposables are just insane, and then you've got a room with all the extra kit. Like, I used to remember going in to see the Castelli stuff at the service course. Yeah. In Girona for, for Slipstream, and it was like, you know, you sort of do quick math in your mind, and you're like, if this was all retail, like, I could sell this and become... To be sell for a while. millionaire. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. Which apparently, when you're in Boulder, is actually not that much money. So, <laughs> so should have just done it and then. Based on the, you know, the prices of the steaks we have in our cooler. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's very <laughs> good money though. here. They're going to taste good. Yeah. Not. My future Nathan is going to be very proud of the purchase that past Nathan was a little bit sad about price wise. <laughs> We're cool. We're cool. Time's not linear. Whatever. In fact. Um, yeah, we could talk about time later. <laughs> we said we'd find a tangent. But maybe, you silly people. Maybe that's not it. Maybe, um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> that's too deep. <laughs> Is there such a thing? Uh, I don't know. I, I tend to get a lot of good feedback on my pods. And, well, about different things, but uh, I got some good feedback on the Sebastian Beba episode. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. I freaking love that episode. I was also kind of coach or had influence from Sebastian Weber, and I could not find two people more opposed in style or uh, approach to coaching as you and Sebastian. Mm. Um, but I felt that your podcast, to anyone that's listening to this, I would 
recommend actually turning off our babble unless you just want to fall asleep or enjoy <laughs> enjoy feeling like you have changes. two friends talking to each other and like you're sitting there like a fly on the wall. But if you're if you're actually wanting to learn something today, get onto the podcast before we do. This is Bastian Weber about the black box of cycling. Right. Um, for me, the, the black box has been a concept that Colby's been referring to basically since we started mm. um, working together. And the basic principle is is that everything that we do in terms of creating load um, is an input into this ultimate black box. So that could be cycling, it could be weightlifting, it could be uh, global stress, it could mm-hmm. be doing sauna, it could be doing altitude, it could be food. Um, and all these things that we try to uh, control our environment, we try to control the inputs into the black box. But ultimately, inside this black box is something happens. And then outside of another pipe is how we go on the bike afterwards, right. or how we perform in a race, or how we end up getting a really useless number called FTP uh, <laughs> on the other side. Yeah, I said useless because it is. Um, uh, let's, don't hate me let's saying re- that. Let's we, recycle that in a minute and you can tell us why, but keep going. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. So, and black box. The black box, right? Um, the, the reason why it's a black box is that we could, for all intents and purposes, put in exactly 100% the same inputs a year later, preparing for the same race, that you had an amazing success with this approach. Um, and ulti- ultimately, that black box will spit something different out. Um, Sebastian Weber, however, actually thinks that the whole thing is so complicated that we can actually simplify it and actually try to predict what's going to come out um, by trying to create order on what we put into the black box. So he, he didn't like your argument of the black box. and you, mm-hmm. you I actually felt that he... He gave his devil's advocates I very well, um, but Sebastian is a guy who's he's quite robotic. Um, I remember being coached by him uh, and being very challenged by the fact that he wouldn't listen to how I was feeling or mm-hmm. how my motivation was that day or the fact that I just hopped off a 36-hour flight from Australia literally the night after doing a classic, which was just only days after doing Tour Down Under and arriving and then the next morning we were supposed to do a six hour training and I thought that was just for the group yeah. I was too tired after one hour because I was jet lagged and felt crap and I went home to the hotel he was like but Nathan what are you going to do to make up this lost volume from today and I was sort of like dude how how do you not grasp the concept that like that is not for my health right because yeah we can try to calculate how much load I need or whatever but you also are where you are and yeah, uh, I just want to interject one thing, if I may. There's a rule I have. There's no such thing as making up training. It doesn't exist. You can't make up training. I've had a lot of my riders say that, like, oh, I missed my intervals on Tuesday. I'll just do them on Thursday. Wait, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to do Tuesday and Thursday's workout on Thursday? Because that doesn't work. It doesn't mean you're going to take away Thursday's efforts and replace them with Tuesdays. Well, that's a choice we can make but you're not making up Tuesday's efforts. This is not how training works. It's the same concept as making up sleep. Right. You can't make up sleep. Once it's lost, it's lost. And you also can't bank it. <laughs> you can't bank sleep. You can be well-slept and well-rested, which is a great idea when you're going into a really hard bike race, for example. But there's no making up. I just wanted to... Yeah, no, no, I totally... And so that's sort of where I was at. And, um, yeah. Colby, in inverse relation to that, is actually 
much more about maintaining health first um, and maintaining function because training is only useful if you have health. Otherwise, you have <laughs> poor health and then you ultimately end up losing all of that volume. That you know, if, if volumes are metric here that we want to have. Right. Or TSS or TSS, whatever you want to kind of uh, yeah. quantify this as. You, you lose it all because now you've had two weeks where you've actually got like the man flu and you're on the couch and yeah. you're feeling crap and you're all kind of inflamed. Your nose is spitting out shit. You can't get oxygen into your body, mm-hmm. um, even yep. if you're at high altitude. Or you're not riding because you're injured. <laughs> right. Right. Because your knee hurts because you did too much of this. Right. Or, or like, you know, my whatever. hip flexors were totally in a bad way after sitting on the plane. And right. I did a small grade three tear to my iliopsoas. <laughs> and... That did not happen. Just coming up with an example of what can happen when you try to do too much, when you're actually not in the ideal health uh, or function to be able to take that on. So the way I think about this is imagine two two lines. And one line is the choice you're making for your short-term athletic performance, right? Everything that – every choice you make, every training decision, every meal decision, every – every decision about load goes on this line, we'll say. And the other line is a line that is a choice you make for your long-term health, your global health over, we're talking years, decades, or multiple decades, right? Decade or decades. And this is the problem I find with cycling or with any sport at the elite level is those two lines, we'll say, are divergent, especially in proportion to how early an athlete is in their career potentially they're divergent commonly we'll say and how much money the athlete is making Mm. right and that can make sense to a degree because if you're a 27 year old whatever swimmer cyclist golfer and you're going to pay you're going to pay for your kids and your grandkids college and pay off your house then arguably for a few years you might make some choices that come at the expense of your long-term health or make those two lines divergent right that's not unreasonable like Many people would like to have that luxury, but I think the challenge comes when amateur athletes who are racing, you know, masters, whatever road races with no prize money, they're well past the shipping sailing out to see where you get to pay for something like a house or a car. They're well past that point and they're doing it for pride and results. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Like if you, if, if bike racing makes your heart happy, then go do it follow your passion. However, I think a slight adjustment is justifiably in order, which is make those two lines, the line between your global health choices, your long-term health choices, and your athletic choices, make them at minimum parallel, if not convergent, right? And those are subtle differences, but they're very important. And what what are we talking about? We're talking about getting up five or six days a week at 4.30 in the morning so that you can ride Swift and race Swift on the trainer, this is not a decision that's going to make you healthy in the long term. Under no illusion, even if you've got the Jocko Willink, David Goggins gene, and you can get away with four hours of sleep at night, which you probably don't, even though you like to think that you do. Well, I, like know, I, know, I know that I don't. <laughs> I definitely do not. <laughs> I'm so far from that end of the genetic tree that it's ridiculous. We're hibernators. <laughs> that's even okay. in the summer. But... <laughs> uh, so okay, my so I just wanted to illustrate that that concept for people. Hopefully, they find it illuminating, right? Like, and Nathan, I know you as an athlete. I uh, tell me if you agree with this. 
but I'm quite certain there are times in your career where you've gone to a director, masseuse, uh, potentially even mechanic or a coach and said, uh, or a team trainer and said, I'm not going to make this choice because I want to protect my long-term health, my global health. And they couldn't understand that choice you made because in their eyes, you were costing yourself potentially athletic performance. Absolutely. Well, right. I, I was, as you were going through that little mini monologue there, um, <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, wow, the next thing I can say is, you know, I, I have quite a lot of living examples of exactly that thing. Right. And, okay. and yeah, I've, I've made some money, um, which is you know, one reason to do a thing. But there's also a big difference, even if you're in a sport that's not um, earning decent money. Because, you know, it's not like pro cyclists earn anything, like even the minimum for baseball. Yeah, right? or, or, or in football. Or, yeah, so, you know, it's it's all relative, right? It's Yes. Yes, it's, it's good money, but it's not like uh, there's many cyclists that actually retire and don't ever have to work again, right? Yeah, it's a pretty small number. It's, it's a smaller number than you'd imagine, and yeah, which which is good too, right? Because I don't want to not do something with my life after school because that's like for fools. Because I'm way too driven to just be like, oh, that's my thing. I'm gonna like hang it up on this beach and you know, right. drink apple teenies. <laughs> I don't drink apple teenies, but if I was a billionaire, maybe I would drink apple teenies. Maybe, maybe that would be like my cool poison. <laughs> um, but the difference is when you're when you're chasing something that gives you a life experience of seeing how close you can come to being the best in the world, and it's also a different investigation as it is to, let's see if I'm going to be the best C grader in Colorado. Yep. Well, I don't know what you guys call grades Cat, here. Cat 3. Cat 3, right, master's rider in Colorado. It's right. like there's, there's, take money out of the equation, right? It's just that investigation might take on a slightly different uh, level of weight and also life experience and all of the things that you kind of get from being in these like really high pressure situations, which I think ultimately are like a pressure cooker of life experience and lessons, right? I think. Yeah. I think anyone that's come through the world tour of cycling is either like completely soul dead or very awoken to um, emotions, situations and whatnot. But for me, health is something that uh, I've always been stressed by um, physically, obviously, um, but also on a spiritual level um, and also on a a level where I'm just purely worried about you know how things progress down in life and um, risk. It's all about risk analysis, right? And um, you know, let's let, let's split health as a cyclist or as an athlete here into two different camps. This impact, meaning like running into objects like a finish line right. barrier or like really really fast road furniture or yeah, other athletes crashing onto other athletes. Yeah, no, let's talk about that. So it's like okay. Yeah. If you ride your bike, you absolutely need to understand this is not the world's safest sport. There is an inherent risk yeah. in riding your bike even to the shops to pick up a bottle of milk. The gravity always wins. Always. It's relentless. It's relentless. <laughs> yes. Um, you ride your bike long enough, you're going to fall off of it. I hate to say it. Yeah. It's And, and the yeah. thing is, I, I sit here knowing that my next crash is when, not if. Right. Um, and right. The question is, how will you bounce back up? How robust is your system? How healthy is it? Right. How fast will you heal? So that comes into the next part. Um, okay. But 
just just before I jump to the next part, it's like, uh, you know, if I had ever had a really, really serious break of something, um, I was very fortunate not to. And, and maybe a lot of the preventative stuff and health stuff that I do do also prevented things breaking catastrophically because I did have some crashes where I was going, you know, 70, 80K an hour in sprint barriers and all sorts of horrible shit where yeah. I got up and I was in a world of pain, but nothing was broken. And other people around me were like getting into ambulances. And yeah, yeah sure, there is an element of good, of good luck, no doubt. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, a lot of the, the different health focused movements and modalities I've done have also helped me to prepare for that. Um, do you to, remember Eddie B talking about the dominant left? He used to have this theory in his book. I'm just thinking along these lines. He used to talk about how people had, most of the time, they would break their left wrist, left clavicle, uh, they would crash on the left side, and they would also get injured on the left side, but but frequently they would crash on the left side and have more injuries. I, I mean, for me, my left knee is the one that I had surgery on. I had a patellar debridement in 2001. I don't know if you've ever heard of that theory. If you think, I mean, some people are like, oh, it's because the drivetrain's on the right. I don't know about that. I think there's probably more to it than that. But he would talk about injury and crashes happening more on the left side for most riders. That was sort of explained. Well, I'm N plus one, right? I, I haven't asked Right, you right. I don't, I don't think for me that would be the case. Okay. I think um, you're bilateral in your... Oh, this is smoky ass this truck. Is, this is a big smoke belching truck. Or is it on Whoa. fire? Is this truck might be on fire. fire. I think it doesn't no, look good. It's coming out of the exhaust pipe. That's yeah. really... Good job, dude. Gnarly. Um... Yeah, so you have, like, impact stuff. And, you know, if I had ever had something where I, like, broke my neck really badly, I would have just at that point said, okay, that's my, like, pro cycling career done. Why? Because I don't want to become a cripple. Like, you know, if I can make some kind of a decent recovery from this, my next step is not proving to myself that I can get back to being a cyclist because hmm. I'm not a cyclist. I am a human that enjoys to cycle. It's not my identity, it's not who I am, and it's not my self-worth. It's something I enjoy doing, it's my profession. Well said. But I am not a cyclist. I'm much more than a cyclist. So mm. I'm not feeling the death of Nathan Haas by not being a cyclist anymore. It just would be a sad thing to not do something that you I might, love doing. You might miss that activity, you might, right? You enjoy it. Well, but, yeah. Um, yeah. But ultimately, if I had had a big impact... but. But here's actually where the kind of more gray area comes in, because that's, that to me was always very black and white. I was always like, if I have one of these really, really horrible experiences, which, you know, could still happen, um, you know, that it's a horrible thing to kind of uh, come to terms with, but, you know, I could still have one of these, you know, critical back incidents. Um, but I can certainly say that in my time as a road professional, I didn't have one, but I always knew deep down that if it did happen, that's it. Yeah. Like I'm going back to just focusing on being a human and um, you know a partner or a father or a son or yeah. a friend or see what else I can offer the world other than just being a dude that wears a jersey and like you know fights through other people yeah. wearing jerseys to fight for a line to see whose world can go first. Stretchy pants. Like when, when you actually break cycling down, it's, like, it's kind of a weird thing to keep trying and super obtuse, um, super obtuse. But I'll say, you know. Now your risk has definitely gone down of that catastrophic crash, no question, because first of all, you're not in a peloton of people uh, that's quite as tightly packed or as densely packed in most instances, right? When you're in a group of 140 guys racing for the line, you've got a lot less control of what happens, you know, 30 rider in front of you or 12 rider in front of you or 100. And so there's that. 
Uh, and then also, I mean, you're in a different place in your life. Like you're a father now. That's yeah. And that, that changes your consciousness about risk. Absolutely. Like, invariably. hundred percent. Right? Yeah. And just wiser about and, that. Kind of thing. And I'm also not training on roads as much, probably like yep. one tenth as much. Yeah. And if I crash, it's kind of due to pilot error and I'm okay with that. The crashes that I always hated were all of a sudden you just ended up on the ground because some idiot decided to look back or yeah. drop his feet back just by his ankle because he didn't want to chuck up his jersey for 10 minutes. It's right. just, right. You know, there's all these stupid things that happen in cycling yeah. at a professional level, also in an amateur one. Um, but you hope they don't happen in an amateur one because people are there to have a good time. It's a recreation. It's not a profession. Um, Unfortunately, people just make mistakes, though. They make errors in judgment. I mean, I've made mistakes. I've caused crashes in races. I, yeah. I hate to say it. I have. And <clears throat> that's why we also shouldn't judge people too much because, you know, we are yeah. always going to be on the other end of the, the scale at some point. But yeah. Um, yeah. physical injury from impact is one thing. It's very black and white. Right. The harder one to actually understand and make judgment on is the gray area of is this actually affecting my long-term health mm. or is this damaging me as a person because too much time in disease causes different diseases and diseases are not always physical they can be emotional and um you know i i basically think that nine tenths of all cyclists have a depression and a very low sense of self self-worth self-worth and and i don't want to uh, use the word depression in in a way to say you know they are depressed but no there is there is something depressive <laughs> about the lifestyle of being a pro cyclist you are never good enough you basically never win right like if you win 10% of your races in a season yeah that's like you're going to be getting paid millions of dollars because right. you are one of the best cyclists of your generation <laughs> And even Eddie Merckx, the greatest cyclist arguably of all times, but he was like 36% of his races he won or something like that in his professional career. Yeah, but, but if you look at like the, the team that wins the World Series, you know, they're, they're up in the like 80 to 90 percentile of wins for the season. Right, because they either win or lose. Yeah. So in cycling, you could be, that doesn't make any sense at all. You'd be second, you'd be fourth. Heck, how far high when I said that? <laughs> <laughs> you said, if you're not first, you're last. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so I'd love to hear to hear you expand more on that. What so why do you think people are so wrapped up in this identity as a cyclist? Well, I, I had this is like, it different than other sports. Um, look, I don't know because I haven't been at this level of other sports, living it at an intimate level. Fair, and I also don't know how the structure of other sports are run and done, but I'm sure there's some similarities. Um, I had this epiphany when I was walking up to a stage for a team presentation and I realized that a rider's results come before the name of the rider. They precede the name of the rider. They go, the next up is four-time Tour of Swiss stage winner, Tour of Jelajar Malaysia. Right, he's won a Tour right. de France yeah. stage and his name is blah, blah, blah. 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 And it's like, how dehumanizing is that? Mm. And how much is that sort of already creating a class system up on this stage? Yeah. Because in my opinion, in cycling, um, you know, an Alex Howes or a Ramunas Navadauskas yeah. is actually of more worth than a guy that's won a lot of the races because they've been instrumental, but they don't get to celebrate the win themselves. They don't get the notoriety. So why is it that 
when Paul when Paul Alex House gets up there, it says like you know, U.S. Pro Champion, U.S. Pro Champion Alex House, right? But he's been next to someone that's like won more races than you can put a stick at, right? Sorry. Wow. Total douchebag in an F two fifty just drove past. Making all kinds of noise. Burping petrol out of his exhaust just to make noise. Super cool, buddy. Um, I was six once too. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, when I was two. <laughs> and then when I was six, I was actually 30. So I'm grown up. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a funny epiphany for me because I was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm not my results and then me. I'm me. And then my results are part of my experience on this earth. And it absolutely doesn't define me. Huh. And it wasn't because I was trying to come to peace with the fact that some guy to the left of me had more results than the guy to the right had less. Yeah. Because I actually genuinely don't care. I actually probably like the guy on the right that's had less results more than the guy on the left because unfortunately we're in this sort of like value system as athletes where we always think that our sense of self and self-worth comes from what we have done or what we are currently doing and sport is magnified i think that's true across society right but sport magnifies them yeah because we get these really obvious uh categorizations of what success is because if you won you won you couldn't have done better that day you were the best or if you were second you were really good yeah but if you were first loser first loser (laughs) but you know it's you know if if you do the best job that you could possibly do in your job um but it's a very repetitive job you know it's, it's harder to know whether or not your validation of success is externally yeah readable so to speak um i didn't i didn't express myself well there but I think you get what I'm saying um, so all of a sudden I hit this moment where I was like man what am I what am I fighting for here you know I, I love trying to win bike races that's what that's what gets my rocks off as a cyclist I actually really like the physical expression and challenge of trying to win but it's not actually the win that I like it's the seeing if I can win that, that I like um Mm. Uh, Winning's nice, right? I mean, it's definitely a cool experience. Sure, absolutely. Oh, but right. But one of the things that I started to kind of study through my own experience, but actually more so looking at other riders, is that this sort of like low-grade depressed state that they're in mm-hmm. is always in correlation to how they're going on the bike. And yeah. they're never in this depressed state when they're riding well. Right. Never. And if right. they're winning, they're high as a kite. You know, they can walk into a room and they're glowing. They feel like and everyone's talking jokes and they can. Everyone's yeah. laughing because at right. the same time, everyone's actually trying to get a little bit of that to rub off on them. Mm. And also, hey, dude, maybe you can help me get a contract next year because, you know, I really helped you win that race, right? Right. So there's this sort of also funny um, stress that goes into people's lives about trying to also get a job in cycling because it's really hard to. Uh, Prove yourself when you're always just helping others. It's also a sport with so little job security for anyone except, you know, the whatever Sagans. Well, look at Cavendish this year even. But the superstars, they have job security, right? Or, or the rare athlete who signs a three-year contract or something. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, every fall, even every July, you're just stressing, right? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Unless you've, unless you've had some landmark result that, pretty much guarantees you and you've got a good relationship with your team and that doesn't happen that for the considering how many riders there are they're being paid to ride their bikes Correct. most of them are not in that situation no no absolutely not so you know there's, there's a lot of stress that goes into being 
pro athlete, but yeah. unfortunately, uh, I see this sort of like death loop that people start to get into this negative mindset when they're not going well on the bike or training didn't go well. You know, I, I, I've seen people where I've caught up with them in the morning before training and they seem great and they try their efforts and then they're just like, can't even talk to them. They're just yes. like, they want to hang themselves. I'm like, yes. failed. I can't believe I couldn't do my hours today. It's all gone wrong. And, and it's like, well, mm. one of the things that we also do know, um, I know you can't know anything, but I feel like you can almost know this, is that if you are in a negative headspace and in like that death spiral, other, other biorhythms within your body will follow that death spiral down. Your recovery will be worse. Yep. Your anabolic... Uh, your hormone expression will be weak. Mm-hmm. Your sleep will be bad, which will mean that you also didn't recover in your sleep. You'll wake up feeling shit, unmotivated. Yep. And motivation is not necessarily something that only driven people have. And you're mm-hmm. either a motivated or an unmotivated person. It's like it, it comes with being in good health yes. and actually wanting to express your greatest physicality because motivation sometimes is a lack of motivation is actually sometimes misread as either one depression or, you know, mental, mental health challenge or two, just being really tired. And that's your body's way of saying, dude, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Stop beating me up. Like stop beating me up. This isn't right. Too much stress, too much stress. And, um, there's a great analogy that you gave me a long time ago, which was um, about breathing. Mm. And it's this concept of the reason why we take an off season, why we let ourselves get actually a little bit fat, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit well, slow, actually not a little bit fat. Like, you know, the, this is like yin and yang bounce back when you've been way too skinny all season that your body, when you finally let it, yeah. you just go, um, and you have fun, not too much fun, but you have your fun do this stuff, you step away from cycling and the the kind of metaphor to use is that all season you've been floating in water, more or less bobbing down under. Every time you go to a race you sink a little bit deeper and then you come home from a race and you're just getting your head above water to breathe in oxygen all season. And then maybe you have like a week break in the season you think okay, that was good. Maybe you sat up on the beach for five minutes and you did some deep breathing but then you're straight back in the water. But the reality is our bodies were never designed to be stressed like this. They just they just weren't. But even period, we were not supposed to be able to do this much uh, VO2 max with also intensity on top. You know, we right. we were supposed to do slow hunting or sprinting away from saber tooths. That's a great point. Um, on that, okay, imagine this: you go for a four-hour bike ride, you do whatever three by thirty thresholds, pretty solid ride for just about anybody, right? When in nature were we ever at threshold, anaerobic threshold for thirty minutes straight, even once? Okay. When we when we hunted, we were persistence hunters. Exactly. So we walked and jogged after a herd of antelope, bison, you know, whatever mastodons, until they basically persist. The concept of persistence hunting is that we have sweat glands, right? We can cool so down. we don't overheat. So we heat them. We we hunt them. We persistence hunt during the day. So they overheat. They can't sweat. They're wearing fur coats. Eventually, they have to stop running from us, even though they're faster than us. Every animal of similar size to us is way faster than we are running. Like, it's not even close, right? So, the only way... Let's run a bike. (laughs) Let's run a bike. So, 
we have to basically trot after them or walk after them or track them for two hours, four hours, eight hours, whatever. And then eventually they can do no more than just literally roll over and put their hooves up and go, I'm done. I can't move. I'm completely overheated. Right. And then we get to bash them over the head with a rock or stab them with a spear. Good for us. So victory, this is how we won. But in that moment, how much of our time was spent at threshold? None. Probably none. Maybe a minute here or there. Right. And you could argue that, yeah, you've got to recruit fast twitch muscles to actually kill the animal. And maybe there's a moment where the thing kicks you or runs away and you decide you're going to run after it. You get it because it's half dead. Okay, cool. What other instances do we have? Well, if we're being attacked by a tiger, we're going to be probably well above threshold and probably for less than five minutes. We're either going to get away or we are a tiger snake, right? Or bear or any other predator that's a herd of jackals. Like, you're not going to run from a herd of jackals for half an hour. There's no universe where that happens. You're either going to get away in five minutes or figure out a solution, jump off a cliff or climb a tree or something, or you're going to get eaten. What about when a tribe attacks your tribe? Okay, here we maybe have an instance of a longer duration of, is it threshold? Certainly a high stress moment, right? But man, maybe we call that VLA max, right? (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, Mr. Weber. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. I mean, have you ever been in a fight? Time slows down when you're in a fight. But then if you go back and actually look at it, it's like, well, it happened in 32 seconds. Let's even take it away from fight. Let's even just talk about an experience where you're sparring with a friend. Yeah. Two minutes. By the end, you guys are throwing haymakers and you can barely stand up. Yes. And like the only reason you get hit is because you basically give up trying to dodge it because you're like, I just can't. Boom. So, so the takeaway for me from this is when people go out and they smash themselves at anaerobic threshold for three by 30 or three by 20 for months on end, desperately trying to raise this number like a broken gerbil on a wheel. That was a bad analogy, but anyway, gerbils aren't broken. Like point being is for you to expect your body to handle that load is probably unrealistic because it's like nothing we've evolved to handle. Right. There's no load like that in nature. Right. So when I talk about this gray area, so if we come back to that, um, one of the problems is when we do a lot of this high intensity for long periods of time yep. mixed in with endurance and then sprints and then high intensity again. And it's sort of just coming at you every which way and other. And then you're also doing sauna work because you've read that, you know, it's the same thing as doing altitude training. And then yep. maybe you're also sleeping in an altitude tent because, you know, some is good, more is better. Yep. Um, you're also dieting because weight is just this thing that cyclists are always freaking out about. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll come back to the hormonal point of weight in a second because I had a, I've had a very interesting experience this year regarding that. Okay. Um, on this exact topic, but yep, we'll, we'll segue back if, if we remember to. Cool. But the problem is as soon as you start doing all of this, you, you are really doing a lot of damage to your endocrine system. And, People think of hormones as something that, you know, you either have a hormone problem or you're good with hormones. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. hormones are quite an interesting thing in the sense that they're a little bit like a battery in a TV remote. You can keep using that TV remote. And as long as that signal is coming through, you don't, you don't think to check the battery, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't think to take it out and maybe if you've got a rechargeable battery, which is good for our metaphor here or analogy. Yeah. You don't think, oh, I better recharge that, right? But every single time you press it, because you're getting the outcome you want, you think, this is great. This is great until all of a sudden you press it and you're like, 
nothing's coming out. I can't change the channel. And this is where we start to actually have short-term longer problems or long-term problems in a short sense, which is, you know, you can be fucked for three or four months at a time. But these also accrue to lifetime problems. Um, and we'll talk about the medical uh, expression of that in a moment. But hmm. the, the issue is hormones are like a battery. You have a certain amount of hormones. And if you keep depleting it more than it can actually be restored, which is, which is something that's very hard to know. And every individual is completely different and also different environmental factors, stresses, global stresses, inflammation, diet, location, all of these things can impact how much that's replenishing. Mm -hmm. You don't realize that your testosterone is actually getting low. Well, testosterone, maybe not because you're not getting bonus in the morning anymore. That's a good for all men. If you're not getting morning bonus, basically you should check yourself before you wreck yourself. That is your one indicator to know without doing a blood test that you're either smashing it at life and waking up feeling great, mm. doing great things, or just basically coasting in and coasting. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when it comes yeah. to other um, hormones, and we don't necessarily need to make a list of all the hormones, but yeah. one group of hormones, because it's very rare that hormones don't deplete in association with others, um, unless you have a particular pathology that makes one less likely to occur or um, replenish. But uh, all of a sudden, you can find yourself feeling great. Great, great. I can just keep doing all of these four-hour, five-hour, six-hour rides with all of these efforts and keep adding all of these stresses. Hey, my body keeps bouncing back. You know, it's working. This is working for me. This is working for me. But if we're not actually looking out for our, like, longer-term health or – I would even say again, like lack of motivation can also be an endocrine system expression to say, dude, stop pushing me because I'm not replenishing fast enough. Right. You keep pushing through days that you shouldn't push through. Yep. And there's lots of signals that you shouldn't push through. It's like low motivation or blah, blah, blah. If, if you're doing that, you're just depleting these endocrine systems. And these are the things that turn your body on and off, start things and stop things, grow things or shrink things, yep. clean things. Or, uh, you know, process things in your body. These are basically the, the chemical markers of life. And if you start fucking with those, those things will fuck with you. They are way more powerful than your motivation or your will or your drive. They are unequivocally the most profound thing that will happen in your body. A subconscious directive of how systems interact, how the biological systems relate to one another. And we take it for granted. It's so easy. You know, it's like, I mean, most world-class athletes, they go and they train and they get good results. Sometimes they get bad results sometimes, but really the odd thing about it is we really don't know how this machine works nope. to, to reduce it. But just as I don't know much about how my car works, like I turn it on, I make sure there's gas in it. I drive it. I take it to the mechanic. He or she is the one who does all the intricate fine tuning. But, but if but you if get I to a mechanic, car, yeah. <laughs> but if you go to a mechanic and they're like, Oh dude, this thing that you didn't know what the name of it yeah. is broken. The thing is, we are not a car. We can't just go get another alternator. You need new brake light fluid. Like, oh, hang on. Let me just quickly make that. Yeah. But once you get to a point where you're so depleted, you're actually kind of in like an inverse <laughs> hormonal pattern that your body doesn't even know what to do anymore. And you yeah. can just be stuck there and you can call it all sorts of medical conditions, like, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, or you can blame the fact that, you know, there's a marker that's saying that you have, um, adrenal fatigue. Yeah. This or that, the other, or, and you, and, and you just, just sit there going like, no, 
well, maybe, <laughs> like maybe, but now we're just trying to find like little flags to sort of say, you know, this was, this was the thing that really broke the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But mm-hmm. no, you were the baseball bat that broke the camel's back because that camel was telling you over and over and over again, dude, I'm bashing yourself in a beat. Don't really want to do this. So yeah. like, yeah. this is a really uneducated thing that we're doing but unfortunately with professional sport is a lot of the time you don't have a choice and you're just made to get on and there's a lot of days in a race where you clip in and you're like if i was training today i would have no way never even put my kid on yeah like this is divergent lines right and and when you're paid to do it you accept like i'm doing something i'm going to keep my job today (laughs) so i'm choosing to do this instead of getting fired or for most cyclists it's actually in fear of losing yeah. Not, not hoping to keep. It's actually yeah. fear of it's a fear, fear of, of loss, loss, right? Or yeah, fear, that's fair. fear of not being good enough. Because yeah. the weird thing is, you can you could win four or five races before April, but then if you haven't done anything since in September, teams yeah. are always on your back, right? Yeah. This is expression in cycling. You're only as good as your last race, and yeah. I think that was hyperbole, but it's true. Yeah. JB used to say. Like the riders are most likely to keep contracts with the one who either win the first race of the year, like the first big one, because for some reason everyone remembers that all year long. Like, oh, he won the first big road race. Like he won Redland State Race or whatever was the big first NRC race in the States. Like, wow, that's he's really they just carry that throughout the season. And even at the end of the season, it's easy to remember that. But the stuff in April and May and June, it's kinda like, ah, you're racing every weekend. Yeah, people remember the victories, but by the time they get to August, it's like, wait, how good are you again? Yeah. Right. So unless you've been winning stuff in the fall. So right. there's this constant and yeah. unfortunate thing that you were never good enough. And then that becomes, that becomes part of your mental state. And then when you feel as if that you are inadequate, yeah. that is something that slowly eats at you. And, and this is in all cycles. I mean, you know, he's one of my good friends from cycling, but like Cavendish basically always feels inadequate, you know, how is it that a guy that's won this many times everywhere still feels the need to win? To win, you know, like doesn't he have enough? Okay, this brings us to a great point that I've thought about a lot for myself recently. Maybe we can unpack it. Like, there, different athletes obviously have different motivations for winning, right? And you've mentioned a few different outcomes for that, and you've mentioned that on days where you don't win, you can feel okay with your performance, depending on the specifics of it. Like. Maybe you helped a teammate to their best result ever, or maybe you helped a teammate win. And some athletes can do that. You know, cycling is a weird sport. Also, to quote JV again, not trying to quote JV a lot today or whatever, but it just works. He he famously said, or at least it impacted me a lot, so it's famous in my own brain. Cycling is a team sport where an individual wins. So it's very it's very unusual in that respect because frequently it does take an entire team of riders to deliver the rider, the one rider, the victory. Not always, but very, but pretty commonly. Mm-hmm. And so if you are a rider who could survive as a domestique or a worker in cycling and you gain joy out of helping a teammate win, help, you know, if you're, if you're uh, Renshaw and you make a career out of leading out Cav, right, then, or Morkov, Morkov, Michael won plenty of his own races on his own, including the Olympic Madison, the whole the Olympic Madison, but, but Renshaw, I don't think Mark won that many races. Most of the time, he was probably in service of Mark. Correct me if I'm wrong. But so presumably he got joy from that. But not every athlete is like that. Some athletes are only their entire self-worth, their entire identity as an athlete and also frequently as a human 
their hat is hung on how many races they have won and when the last time they won. And they have to meet. It's almost like a pathological need to crush other people. This is the most, I would argue, archetypal way to look at competitive sport is I went to the line to smash everyone. And my example I've got to use, even though I hate to do it, is Lance because he always talked about smashing other people's dicks into the dirt and you know, killing those motherfuckers. He used every bad word in the book. He was just a ruthless gangster on a bike because he was so angry at the world because his daddy left him when he was a little boy. I'm not making any earth shattering statements here. This has all been documented, right? So, and he's still, from what I can tell, he's still pretty much the same guy. Maybe not. Who knows? I'm not here to judge him. He's Lance's Lance. But point being is, that's how he garnered his motivation was crushing other people and making them less than. And I think I had a, a Canadian coach once, uh, a track coach, for whatever reason, even though I was coaching the Canadian team, we struck up some conversations and he offered me some really interesting advice and insights from time to time to just give me these little nuggets, which was great because I didn't have a lot of people to give me those nuggets, especially for someone who was sort of observing me from a third credit perspective. And one time, his name is Eric. He came up to me and he was like, yeah, you're a really interesting guy because I can tell that you're not really here. You're not racing your bike to win. And I was like, what the fuck does that mean? You know, I'm at a world cup. I'm representing the United States. Of course I'm here to win. You know, that was just my response. And it took me, I don't know, maybe till now to figure out what the hell he was talking about. He was absolutely right. I, in, in the traditional paradigm of Lance's world, I was nothing like Lance Armstrong. I'm never thinking about crushing someone else or making them less than or calling them a pussy. That's just not my universe of bike racing. Like that is not, that, those thoughts don't go through my head at all. And I'm not here to, this is just my experience, right? I'm not here to tell anyone they're good or bad or that, how they should race. Not the point. My experience was, for me, cycling was about two things primarily. One, it was about being part belonging to a group. And I've realized that that was a big part of my motivation was like finding my tribe. Because as a teenager, when I discovered cycling, I had no tribe, zero, like no one to get along with. And I discovered cycling. And for whatever reason, it hit me like lightning bolt. It's like, this is my people. These people are all really weird and I'm weird. So I got to find someone who can get what I'm talking about. I'm a bike dork. And I went home and shaved my legs at the age of 15. Like, I'm a bike racer. My stepmom looked at me like I was from Mars. And that reinforced it because I was weird. Like, yes, I must be pulling this off. Exactly. So one was I was finding a tribe. And not to diss anyone who's part of my tribe now, but I recognize that that is no longer a need I have. I don't need to be part of the tribe of cycling. I want to, but I don't need it and I don't define myself off of it. And I realized that years ago when I started seeing other cyclists who would walk around town wearing race t-shirts and cycling hats at the grocery store. And I was like, Ooh, Ooh. I kind of stuck my nose up at them and I'm being, I'm just being transparent here. And I realized that I didn't want to be identified as a cyclist out off the bike. So that told me that my tribe wasn't something I wanted to advertise. And again, I'm not judging anybody who does feel that way. If you, that's you, you do you go do what your heart tells you to do. But the second reason that I learned to actually win a few bike races now and again from time to time was mostly because for me, cycling was chess. Correct. And it was the tactical, right? It was the cleverness, the outsmarting or figuring out the pattern of the race or anticipating who's going to make what move when, and then figuring out it was a puzzle. It's like, how do I beat them? 
I think JV also had this tactical bit, but he also had some lands in him. He just wanted to smash people. Yeah, there's definitely a side of that to JV's personality. Why do you why do you race Nathan? Um, if question. you care to share. Good question. I think um, for me, I'm actually the same. I prefer to win. It's nice to win, but it's definitely not the only reason. Why? My, my motivation is the trying to win, and I like to race courageously, or with balls, or mm. with guts, or, um, you know, moxie. Yeah, or, or even we could use the word panache, right? Like, that's a very cyclic-specific word. Yes. Um, and I would prefer to know that uh, I played a risky hand. You know, I've, I've, I'm not uh, risk-averse when it comes to... You know, things like gambling. And I'm not a gambler, but, you know, if I play a, a card game with family, there's a card game that we always play. Well, it's actually a board game, I should say, <laughs> where you have to take risk. And the, the more risk you take, the more reward you can get. Is the game called risk? No. Oh. <laughs> but on the other side is if you take too much risk and you spill the pot, which is part of this game, one of the features of you get nothing or you actually lose points right uh-huh. but I've, I always love the thrill of seeing kind of how close I can get to that red line right and if it pays off you're like oh that felt amazing uh-huh. but if it didn't work it's like well it's, it's a board game, game. yeah like, and the way I've always sort of seen cycling is exactly that it's like I first and foremost I love expressing my greatest potential physically I love that mm-hmm. because that's also a way of tapping into your psyche right because there's no physical expression without a clear way of thinking towards that, right? And the process is what's great. And, and I think um, for me, when I was first introduced to actually having routine uh, from my first coach, and I started to see how good things got and how other things in my life actually got more sensical, I started using time better because I wanted to give most to cycling that I could. I started to realize that not. You know, this sort of structure and routine is part of becoming my best physical outcome but that was also like I'm starting to actually have discipline in life and I think the discipline is um, you know something that a lot of people maybe you know scoff at they're like oh you know you don't want to be too disciplined in life but it's like no no but you also need to have a certain amount of it to actually get anywhere yeah like, otherwise you're kind of just shooting from the hip your whole life yeah balance but, right but I'd have my fitness, but then in racing, I actually still like to kind of shoot from my hip. And I never liked to have a plan that was like too set in stone because mm. I always like to let instinct and the chance of doing something a little bit extraordinary come off. And if it didn't happen, so be it, you know. And there was a guy in our club, he's an amazing sprinter, his name is Tom Palmer. Um, he won a few junior world championships on the track, but every single crit. Every single crit we ever did in Canberra, and we had amazing bike riders in Canberra. I grew up in this pretty, pretty amazing boat. We had Mick Rogers coming back in summer, mm-hmm. Matt Heyman coming back in summer, Rory Sutherland coming back in summer. My cohort was um, Michael Matthews, myself, yeah. um, and there was about 15 other guys all on the same level as me. And oh, Bling was always a little bit better than everyone, but just by a little bit, you know, not a huge factor, but he was always the best. Mm-hmm. But not when it came to a pure sprint. Tom Palmer was mm. so fast. But he never raced with balls. Not once did I ever see him trying to go and break away. He just always had the composure 
to risk losing to win. And then if it ever did come back to a sprint, he would just paste us all because he yeah. did absolutely nothing in the race. And it was a circuit that we did every single week. And it was a circuit that lent itself to actually being able to really sit in and do nothing if you wanted to do nothing. So you could be fresh as anything. Yeah. Or you could be completely dead because you've been attacking and having fun with it. And yeah. the interesting thing was, like, if, if his sprint ended up having a big engine behind it, I think he could have been really one of the world's absolute best sprinters. Yeah. But I actually think what held him back in his development is the fact that he never built an engine because he was always in the mindset of, Sit and wait, do as little as possible, yep. win the sprint. Yep. Sit and wait, do as little as possible. Whereas uh, I always went out and basically if I had good legs or not, I raced it like I had good legs Yeah. just to see if I could just do something special because I liked trying and I like trying to win more than I actually think I like the winning. Because when I win, it feels great. You get accolades, people pat you on the back, but yeah. that's certainly not what I do cycling for. Um, and... Uh, where did we go? This is the point of this conversation. Go on tangents and kind of get lost. So that's good. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it, it's sort of this thing of what motivates you. And, and, and it's an important question to actually ask when you're jeopardizing your health. Yeah. What are you doing this for? Yes. And I think a lot of writers uh, get lost here with this exact question. And they don't actually know what they're doing it for. And I actually found the more... Work I did, or inner work we could call it, to asking myself, you know, why am I doing this? Um, the more I realized, you know, all of the reasons that might not have actually been genuinely Nathan reasons, and they were like external reasons as to why I'm trying to do this, it changed me as a bike racer. And there were certain fights that I just didn't want to put up with on the bike anymore, or certain things that weren't me. And it's sort of slowly towards the end of my career, um, stopped feeling as genuine. And I, I lost drive in different ways. But what I did learn is to not push through a lack of drive um, because I believe wholeheartedly that that actually causes disease. And disease is disease, right? That's the next manifestation of it, or you become yeah. chronically ill. Yeah. And um, for, for what it's worth, we we push ourselves so much, and we always just think that the body's going to be able to rebound but the reality is we have to be in this like meat carcass for as long as possible <laughs> and biological space suit. biological space suit. <laughs> and I don't want to get everything out of it between the ages of 30 and 35 right and then realize that my actual quality of life because life years are not the same thing as quality of life years right right um, and I've already felt so many things slowing down in my body just from where I've already pushed it. And one of the interesting things for me this year, and now we can come back to what we were saying about weight in cycling, is yes. that um, I've, I've really found that my body took a really long time at the end of this year. So I gave my body, instead of just having an off-season of four weeks off doing nothing, which is already a lot more than most people can even fathom doing in pro cycling because they're all type A people. I am more, is more, is more, is more. I need to yeah. keep my endurance up. I need to get it up, up, and up. I don't want to gain weight. I need to do more cardio. I'm getting fat. I can't get fat because it's so hard to lose. Yeah. Um, I gave myself basically two months after my road career ended where I just did literally nothing. Mm. I, I was a lazy, horrible slob, but it wasn't because I was giving up on the world. I was actually saying, well, you know what? For the last decade or more, yeah. the most time you've ever had off 
you weren't riding a bike or doing something hard, which is building, which is really stressing your heart, <laughs> stressing your endocrine system, yes. your nervous system. Yes. Like your brain structures are also changing based on your like biochemistry, right? And of course, these changes are basically permanent once we've made them. Well, and if you've been making it for a decade, that's, I mean, they're probably. I don't know if I'd say they're permanent. It depends on what change we're talking about. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, your yeah. neuroplasticity is right. It's a pretty phenomenal thing, and the, and the body can make a lot of mm-hmm. uh, compensations back to back to nature if we give it the right environment. But it's much better doing that when you're young, though. Correct. Correct. And but I recognize that I have not given myself time up on a beach to breathe. To go back to that yep. analogy for yep. over a decade, so I gave myself two months, and I couldn't believe how bad I kept feeling yeah it started to actually feel worse and worse and worse Mm -hmm. and then it started to feel really bad and then old injuries had i even though i wasn't doing anything started to kind of poke their rear heads up again and i'm like what is that about i haven't had that problem for like seven years interesting you're like wow it was just my body it felt like it was literally unwinding yeah and then when i started to get back on the bike even though um you know i had I would call them, you know, contracts with, you know, my partners that, guys, I'm, I am planning on being competitive this year. But the nice thing is gravel really doesn't start until April, right? Yeah. As opposed to for every year, I was finishing racing in October, taking four weeks off, and then literally getting on the bike and trying to get, like, fast fit to be racing in Australian Nationals on January 4th. Some of that is you just the, the luck of the draw of you participating in a European sport as an Australian and having your biggest month of racing be January in Australia. Yeah. Like, that's just... Well, arguably most meaningful on a national basis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or appealing to your, like, fan base, right? Because that also matters. You, you do kind of feel the support that comes from your Australian fans. If you're Australian, if you're in the Australian races and you're shit, right. you kind of feel like you've actually... Let people down a bit. Yeah, or, or let yourself down because it's like, oh, it's actually a celebration of cycling, I feel, the Australian racing. It's really great. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Um, I was unwinding and I was just starting to feel so shit. And then when I started to get back on the bike, I, I had to relearn my relationship to the bike was, Nathan, you are never forcing again. You force too many times in the last period of time and your body is telling you that it is pissed. Like it is pissed. It is not happy. That was not sustainable. Yeah. Probably why my kind of like love for it changed or evolved Um I loved my time in cycling and I would do it again had I been given the chance. There's no, there's no part of me that says I wouldn't want to do it again. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But on the other side of it, I'm sitting there going, I can't actually push through this anymore. So any day that I went out riding, I didn't have a bike plan. I just took my bike. <laughs> I took enough food for if I wanted to go longer. Mm-hmm. Always had two biddens. Knew where there were water stops if I wanted to go. And if at an hour in, my intuition said bike ride's over mm-hmm. I turn home yeah. but if I'm three hours in and I'm feeling great I'll be like cool my body wants to exercise today and I'm going to give it what it wants it's, it's loving this and I'm loving it mm-hmm. but that would be a positive reinforcement but what I've kind of learned which is sort of what I'm trying to get at as a whole here is that on those bad days I didn't beat myself up because I said this is actually just me finally listening to my body yeah. and feeling that there's no rush or need to push through this because I am feeling inferior or not good enough or I'm in a comparative mindset that this or guy's the, where they yeah. want to be and I want to be there. Or that you're not going to be good enough because you're not adhering to an external calendar training program that says you have to do intervals every Thursday right. and every Tuesday or else right. you're not good enough. 
or whatever. And the one of the interesting things with weight was um, in the two months, after about three weeks, it had put on eight kilos. Eight kilos? Just it's a lot, right? Solid. When you think about that, that's 11 to 12% of my race weight. Yeah. That's, that's a huge, that's a huge flip. And then I sat at that weight. I kept eating the same amount, drinking the same amount, doing whatever, literally not exercising for two months because I just thought, well, when else in your life are you going to get this opportunity to just not do anything? Right. Because, um, you know, you still paid for those last months, so you're not like, <laughs> not like out there stressing out or anything because you're still getting paid as a pro cyclist once you've finished yeah. your last race for a few months. Right. I was like, when is the last, when is the next time this is going to happen? It's never when am I going to get paid to do nothing? So, <laughs> COVID, can you come back? <laughs> no, I don't mean that. No. Um, that wasn't fun. So I hit this sort of like eight kilos and then all of a sudden my body was like, that's not homeostasis. Mm. I didn't change anything. And then all of a sudden it just crept down to 76. Yeah. And then for the next month it was just at 76 and I wasn't stressed. And I then started exercising, doing all these things. Nothing really changed for a while, but I started to feel really healthy and like vital. And I started waking up, actually waking up and I could go to sleep and just go to sleep and then when I was eating I was actually feeling like wow my body is my body's insulin is like doing the right thing in coordination with how much sugar I just put in and uh-huh. um, I felt like my, my gut health had finally caught up after eating you know, infinity gels and bad sports products and um, you know for when I was drinking them because now I realize I don't like it yeah. protein yeah. shakes and recovery shakes and parades and all this stuff is ripping your stomach lining to shreds and right um, so I started to finally feel health. And then without thinking about it, uh, or, or to take it back a step, the, the last sort of four years of my career, I felt as if that my body had made some kind of shift. My ideal race weight or the weight that I used to be at when I got my best results was either 69 or 70. <laughs> but then for four years, I couldn't get any lower than 72. And even when we did like fat composition testing, it was like I would have the same amount of fat, but I just couldn't get down below 72 anymore. And it was, it was awkward. I, I didn't understand. And I thought, well, maybe as you get older, your body composition changes, and this is what the body's evolved to do now. And I have to kind of evolve my racing around it a little bit or change my expectations of what I can do. But then the funniest thing was, is like I've actually this season done without a doubt, less hours bike riding than I have in any year for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not doing all these races, coming home, being completely dead for a week, but still trying to get out every day and just hope that that was the next good day. Coming home disappointed, yep. Yep. stressed out, finding that your race programs change, dealing with injury, dealing with sickness because your global health is shit because you're doing all this racing and traveling in the cold. And then you're also trying to diet because you're like, oh, and having you've got bad airport food on top of it half the time. You're yeah, you're not controlling your diet, right. period. Right. And when you're at a race, even even with a team chef, like they're not going and buying grass-fed, like yeah. grass-finished beef. They're buying absolute shit. They're, buying, saying, they're buying what they can get which is whatever's at the local market. Probably, right, right. right. Yeah. And then you're also not having organic vegetables, no way. Um, but that's not their purview. They think that nutrition is literally just what I'm trying to do is give you a healthy meal and make sure that the chef doesn't get you food poisoning, which, yeah. is, which is a great thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to get food poisoning in a race. I had that, it's really bad. <laughs> it tends to impact your race invariably. Yeah, even though you're really light, 
There's, <laughs> the, there's the point that weight is not the metric. <laughs> you're the lightest you've ever been. It's just you have nothing in your body. But but this year, I've had less hours on the bike, mm. on average per week. Definitely, I'm doing one long ride a week. It's a long ride though because with gravel, I want to be good at doing the six, seven, eight hour rides. But I'm not doing back to back of that anymore. It's there's a lot of short, explosive stuff on other days, and then I have my long day, and then I yeah. have I've been given myself more or less the weekends off so I can actually enjoy family time. Um, and this isn't to say that I'm not training hard, right? Like it's absolutely not that. It's just a different relationship to what I think the needs of gravel are, right? It's, I think it is fundamentally different, um, which we can get to or not, um, depending on what we want to do here, but were you inspired by Neil's Vanderpool to take weekends off? Uh, was that just a coincidence? No, on, honestly, it was just that I, I started to think, you know, we always talk about cycling in relationship to your life. Mm. And I decided that I can get everything done in those first five days of the week. And I like to always have two recovery days in a row anyway. You, you, you remember that it would be mm. like, I'd have a recovery day and then a day off or a day off and a recovery day because you know, like, fuck do you recover from a three-day training block with a recovery day one day like any athlete if your coach is telling you that and then they jam you straight back into a two or three-day recovery block have uh, a have a three-day three training block three-day training block yeah, yeah. sorry yeah three-day yeah. training block one day off because that's your recovery day that's all you need it's like are you kidding me <laughs> like if, the, if those three days are real days that's very rare that like Unless you're doing a block training specifically and you're looking for overload, yes. But if it's this is a regular thing, yeah. But the, but the thing is, that's too much. It's just too much. Just too much. And I, I feel you are. I feel that I actually need after a solid block of training to actually give myself a solid block of rest to actually get back up on the beach so that my nervous system isn't pissed off at me. Yeah. My endocrine system actually gets a chance to replenish. My relationships. Actual relationships also get some nourishment because on a recovery day, if it's the only one that you get, like, fuck, you're going to do anything, right? Right. So they're like, oh, would you like to go to the beach? Like, nope, because tomorrow I've got to be doing a six hour ride again and that's going to kill me. And I don't want to feel shit because if I feel shit, I'll be upset, depressed, and hate myself and think I'm a failure and not be good enough. And then the next day, while your wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever is like, well, when do I get to spend time with you? Exactly. So it's like, for now, Weekends is sort of like my sacred time, and then I, I will ride my bike. And if I have a, a friend that's not a pro cyclist that says, "Hey, dude, would you like to go on a coffee shop ride?" Yeah. I love doing that because that's actually replenishing my actual relationships. Or yeah. if my dad's visiting and I go, "Dad, let's go for a nice bike ride today." Yeah, it doesn't matter how many hours it is. It's not. It's not You're intensity. Not your power meter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, and I've yeah. also stopped uploading because I've. I don't have a coach. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? What? Hang on. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, it's like I know I know where I'm at. How do you know where your CTL is, Nathan? Well, here's the thing. What, what's your threshold? Do we go back to threshold? My threshold <laughs> for this conversation is zero. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dude, your mind you just blowing my mind right now. You um, know your threshold or your CTL? How do you not know your CTL? This is like, this is the goal of training. To have a higher CTL. That's all it is. It's not to actually be fast. No. The, the, the goal is not to actually have speed go up. If I have a super high CTL, mine's higher than yours. If yours is 121 and mine's 131 on the line, and you beat me, I know that I trained harder than you. I really deserved it. Yeah, or my threshold set wrong. Right? 
no, my threshold's higher than yours, and you beat me. Uh, well, I deserved it. I was strong. Yeah, no, 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 you. We should just accept that fact. I don't even know why we're here, depending on numbers. <laughs> why don't we just give me the gold medal, the prize? I mean, the box of power bars. I'm colorblind, <laughs> so old medals uh, look the same to me. <laughs> maybe there's maybe there's a meaning in that too. Maybe. Um, but yeah, so this year's been interesting. I've been able to control my diet. Mm-hmm. Like I'm eating the exact foods, I'm sourcing the foods that I want, eating in a lot, mm-hmm. um, which me and my partner we enjoy. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the training I feel that I need to do on the day because I've also learned an intuition of, okay, I'm struggling on six hour rides. Maybe I need to express that. Mm-hmm. And oh, I'm not feeling so good at the end of a one minute all out. Mm-hmm. Maybe I need to work on that. You know, and, and it's not as simple as that, right? Because there's there's a lot of intuition that comes in and then and then you race and then you really start to see where the cracks are, right? And you're like, ah, it's interesting, I've dropped this right. twice in a row. Yeah. That's my low hanging fruit now, yep. right? And yep. and I've always looked at cycling in terms of what's the lowest hanging fruit because that's where you're gonna get the biggest gain for like the least <laughs> amount of work. Um Okay, so can I pause you there for one second? May I? Please. Okay, so this is back to our Sebastian conversation in the black box, because what you just alluded to there was the black box, which is, okay, I got dropped in these two one-minute hills, just to pick kind of an easy-to-understand example. So the assumption is, all right, clearly I need to, within the context of overall power and average power or, or good number of KJs, especially if those hills were later in the race, you might, you might come to the conclusion, I need to work on, after 2,500 KJs of riding, I'm going to work on my ability to jam up some one minute climbs because I've also got races, gravel races. This is a common scenario of gravel races. So it's not just that I'm looking in the rearview mirror. I'm trying to take care of my low hanging fruit for the future. Okay. That's logical. So then what this, what this makes me think of, and this is where I think the view of Sebastian's black box model and mine are, are perhaps compatible. And, and really what I'm doing is expanding the concept he has. If I may be so, have so much hubris as to suggest that I might be able to enlighten a concept that Sebastian knows well. If we imagine that there are KPIs or key performance indicators that must be to a certain level in order for an athlete to perform, and what we can do is put those KPIs into the box, and what we're doing is we're manipulating which KPIs in which order and maybe a few other variables around them, to focus on based on this example. So this is, this is our example, like the, the get dropped twice on a one minute hill. Okay. So we're going to do some rides where we do 20, you know, 2000, 2,500, 3000 KJs for the work. And then, or maybe 4,000, if it's a really long race, and then we're going to do some one minute efforts. That's our input into our box. And if you're missing that level, that ability to perform that KPI, that key performance indicator, right? We'll call it then you're just not going to perform in your gravel races because that's a common scenario. However, I would also argue, so this is, this is like the difference in the way you can win the race versus the way you can lose the race. Mm. This is the same idea. So there may be a dozen KPIs and I'm just making up a number that I have in my head at the moment, not because I've listed them out carefully or I have them all solved or I know all the things, but that's just what I'm thinking of. But there's probably 98 other things that could be rate limiting factors that will prevent you from expressing your KPIs. And if we don't acknowledge that these other 98 factors also go into the black box, 
we have a too limited of a paradigm, in my opinion. And what are these things that I'm talking about? Well, you can have the best threshold, one minute power, uh, you know, fat max. You can have a, a really efficient, you know, can be very efficient at burning fat and glycogen sparing for long races. You can have a very smooth pedal stroke. You can have a, whatever, a good tactical sense. We can think a little bit outside physiological parameters. Um, you can have a good experience for the race. You can have a good understanding of how crosswinds are going to impact your power. Okay. So there we made a list of KPIs for a given race that might be specific to the outcome. Uh, we'll also add to that technical knowledge of your own equipment. Like if you show up to unbound with, you know, the 15 pounds PSI too much on your tires, you're never, you're not going to be able to make up for that. Right. You're so you're going to have a bad time. If you exactly. pizza instead of French fries, you yep. have a bad time. Yep. Yep. So, okay. Those are our KPIs, but we also have 98 other things that are rate limiting factors. Potentially, if you don't sleep for three days before the race, none of those 12 KPIs will matter. Correct. If you don't eat any carbohydrates for three days before the race, those 12 KPIs become irrelevant. And if, if you're having a fight with your partner, yes, a massive because fight. Because you've created division in your life because of your stupid ass lifestyle that's only thinking about the unbound. actual unbound thing and the training that goes towards it and not recognizing that actually your whole life needs to be holistic with a WH, right? It's like you don't, that yeah. fight is going to create a massive issue. And, mm-hmm. and here, if I, if I might take over, please. Um, one of the reasons why I think threshold is fucking bullshit yes. um, is the fact that I'm sick of trying to control things mm. because actually that's all external measurements of control, right? And you're like, oh, I'm trying to control this thing that goes into the black box, this thing that goes into the black box. But when I talk about how I train, and I kind of always was like this, but then I had you to look at the numbers and actually sort of give me like good indicators and make it a little bit more honed in is that what I'm actually looking for is when I do a series of one minute efforts is how do I feel? Do I feel in control? Mm-hmm. And I actually don't give a fuck about the number mm. because if it's 600 or 700, yeah. it's irrelevant yeah. because I can do a 700 and feel completely out of control and in pain and just know that that is going to serve me nothing in a race because there's so many stresses and so many things that basically make your head. If you get to that level of suffering, closing and break down. Right. And the 600 watt might actually serve me much better in that racing scenario, but I'm in control. I'm able to actually express it. Yep. And same thing with 20 minute efforts and anything similar to a Z threshold is that really what it comes down to is you have this, like the biggest rate limiting factor is how are you cognitively under stress? Mm-hmm. And you have life stresses, if you have money stresses, if you have not enough sleep, partner if, stresses, like there's all these things that it's like, you know, if you look at it from zero to a hundred, if, yeah. if, if stress for the race, because you overthought it is here, stress for your relationship. Now you're at 40 out of a hundred, right? 50 out of a hundred from something else. And now add 45 from the effort that you've already done in the race. You're at like 95 out of a hundred. So are you yeah. going to get, much more squeeze out of what you can do because you can only push so hard. Yeah. But if you're actually sort of like open and feeling in control in general, mm-hmm. it, or it gives you, a, yeah, I'd probably explain this a little well poorly. in control, but I, I would almost, I, I understand your concept. And I think I'm sure we agree here, but I would argue or I would, I would submit offer. I'll say 
that actually, it sounds to me like you're actually not really trying to control your one minute's efforts. You're, you're actually surrendering and releasing control, right? The old, like you started off saying, I wanted to control threshold. I want to control those numbers. I want to control precisely. I'm doing three by 20 at 420 watts or whatever. That's my input. And only if I do the 420 by three by 20 minute durations, will I know that I'm good enough to raise my threshold. The next week I expect to be able to do 330 or 430 or whatever, right? But by releasing, by surrendering, by recognizing how little control we actually have, which is something I think most humans really struggle with, but you got to be real, man. When you look at this wave that we're riding, this river, this raging river of life that we're on, I mean, look at COVID as one small example. Like, how much of our lives do we actually control? And if you have the illusion that doing more threshold is going to give you some iron grip over whether you're going to win a bike race, you're in fantasy land, man. Like, you can do all the thresholds from here to Mars and show up, and someone else can just show up to the line and just wax your ass because they're just better than you. Yeah. Or they're on the sauce or they slept more or we can name 900 other reasons. But the fact is like we have so little. Anyway, I, I think what you're saying is in some ways, maybe disagree with me if you, if you feel like I'm speaking for you incorrectly, but I think you're saying in some ways we are better served. It seems like you've relaxed because you're flowing with the rhythm more, you're feeling your body more and what it needs in training. You're not adhering to a schedule, which is more towards control, I would argue. I'm looking for less extremes and I'm looking for more subtle feeling and feeling again, like every time that I finish a ride and I feel like I was in control of that ride. Mm. This doesn't mean that like in the one minute effort, I'm just sitting there pedaling pretty and going easy. No, yeah. no, no. It's yeah. it's a hundred percent, but there's a different way to express that. And I think okay. yeah, surrendering is yeah. an absolutely awesome way to say that. It's like, there's, there's a great podcast going on at the moment. It's called, um, so Malcolm Gladwell has done it. Uh, and it's the story of the African American sprinters. Mm-hmm that at the Mexico City Olympics raised their fist. Uh-huh. And it's an amazing story. And uh, It's called like this Speed City or something like that. Um, and Speed City was the university that they went to. That was sort of their like uh, name that people sort of nicknamed the university because all of the best runners in the United States coming out of this and there were all the gold medal winners. And this coach had this theory that Actually, you couldn't force your run. Anyone that was actually trying to run faster by running harder went slower. And then he identified and he basically cherry-picked all these athletes that either had this natural flow or, inversely, runners that were going fast but they were trying too hard. And he taught them, like, different mental cues. It was like fish lips. Try less. It was literally... Yeah. Try less. And I want you to be running with a deadpan face. Like as soon as you grimace, yeah. you're actually not in control of the effort anymore. The effort's controlling you. Mm. And he's more or less saying that you need to submit to the run. And let the training and everything that we've been preparing for actually express itself to its ultimate yeah. ending. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And I, I really resonated with that because I'm like, that's how I've always felt with cycling. It's like as soon as I've ever tried to go out and, you know, if you ever gave me three by 20, 
and if I felt shit after the second 20, I'd just go home. I'd never force the third one. And I think sometimes you'd be like, oh, Nathan, did you go too hard on the first two? I'd be like, no, I just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Like doing another one today did not feel like it served me. So I've, I've always maybe been a little bit more like intuitive. Um, yeah. You know, my partner at times has called me lazy, but I have to also <laughs> see that too, right? And, and challenge the ego to actually say, well, maybe I'm being, maybe yeah. I'm actually being lazy. And then, um, yeah. you know, that relationship with yourself grows because it is important to have a devil's advocate. Um, but uh, I think ultimately every time I have progressed um, on an internal level or become more at peace with everything and it's going to be how it's going to be I, I remember before before probably one of my biggest results on the road it was Amstel Gold mm-hmm. um, I was fourth uh, and it was the it was my goal race for my entire career it was always the race that I was trying to win it was my white whale and you gave me this really weird advice and it was like exactly true it was like Nathan you need to race tomorrow like the race has actually already happened mm-hmm. like you need to treat it as though whatever result you end up getting is the one that you are always going to get. Basically submit to the race and your best will come because if you try to control it yourself, you won't race on instinct. And if you're not racing on instinct, you're reactive, which is slower than the situation. And if you're slower than the situation, you're forcing, if you're forcing, you're not efficient, you're going to be in the wrong place and you're not going to get your best result. And that really was one of those days where actually where I decided to, attack across to this group was it almost seemed nonsensical but just this part of me was like yeah go now and I just went with it and I was the last guy to get across to this group that eventually won the bike race and in the end we we went so hard that no one was actually able to catch us again for the entire last circuits and it was like you know another teammate of mine was like I had when I saw you go there, I thought, oh, Nathan's You're lost no any chance of winning this bike race now. Right. But I just knew, yeah. for whatever reason it was, now's the moment. This, this is the time to go. Mm-hmm. And it was. Um, yeah, I didn't, those moments I didn't win, but actually forced me in Amsterdam Gold. Yeah. was, you know, fuck what anyone says. I won Amsterdam Gold that day to me, right? That was my mm-hmm. utmost amazing expression of what I could do on the bike. Because the other guys, like you said... <laughs> They were just better than me, and they always have been. You know, they've won. They've won these big races all the time, yeah. and me being there was my own amazing situation. You know, it's like victory is not always first. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Um, but coming back, moving <laughs> back, yeah. I feel like no, that's great. We're, we're circled a bit. Yeah. The the training I've done this year, so still linked to what we're saying, but the training I've done this year. It's not as much in total hours. It's not as many hard, hard, hard days in a row. Mm-hmm. It's not as many fucked up races, coming back, licking my wounds, trying to get myself together, avoiding sickness, stressing out, blah, blah, yep. blah, hoping to make team selection. But for the last four years, I couldn't get below 72 kilos. This year, without even thinking about weight or dieting, and in fact, you know, this is the first year where I have zero guilt if someone says, dude, you want to come down for a beer? I go, yeah, you know what? I did like 12, 13 years of absolutely denying myself that luxury to go have a beer with a friend because I thought that was terrible for me and was, yeah. you know, not goal-orientated. I'll go and have a beer. I'm not not a big drinker, so you know, I don't go and <laughs> get messed up. But like, you know, I've got all these things in my life now that it's like I've just got so much more balance. And weirdly, I'm at like 69, 70 kilos, mm-hmm. which is what I was fighting 
yes. to get to for like fighting to get to for years. Yeah. Not making sense how I couldn't get there anymore. Yeah. And I've stopped trying, so I've actually surrendered to steal your concept again. Mm. Surrendered. But because I'm not over pushing my body and I'm not pushing through the days where my body says, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And I'm not, and also I'm not forced to push through those days like you are in the world too. So it's not just about choice. It's also about, I'm not in a scenario where I'm forced to put myself into that gray area of health anymore where it's not black and white, like a broken bone. It's just, you just feel terrible and you don't know why. Yeah. I don't have to do that anymore. And my body says, I'll happily get lighter because we're healthy. Yeah. I don't feel like there's a drought. I don't feel like there's a famine. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to hold on to everything. I'm going to do what makes me actually feel a little bit faster on this climb that we're doing a lot of times. Like, it's interesting that we're doing the same climb a lot of times, bro, but you know, I'm, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to get a little bit lighter. Um, and, and also not that weight is a great determining factor, but it can be a rate limiting factor, right? Yeah. Definitely limits well your ability. Yeah. Um, be. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it's just very interesting when you put yourself into a different environment or, or, or the one thing in a different environment that you were trying so hard to get all of a sudden kind of just comes for free and naturally. Mm. It's only natural to start questioning what is good and what is not good for you. And, and I know, I know that writing Grand Tours is, is definitely taking time off your life. Yeah. Like it just is. It just is. It's an amazing accomplishment. And, complete one you've got like another gear that i don't think you can get any other way maybe but i, I totally agree my i had that experience but it comes at such a price and I, i've never ridden a grand tour i've ridden a 12 day a couple 12 day races and that was i had that experience in those races so i can't imagine going you know over another week longer but anyway yeah and what what i don't understand is how riders actually motivated after a Grand Tour to then go, oh, I want to go use my Grand Tour form. And I'm like, Race a bunch of criteria. I want to go curl up in a ball and cry for a while because <laughs> I pushed I pushed so many buttons that yeah. I don't think should be pushed at the same time. Yeah. And then you put your force to go race, right? Right. You're actually forced to go race. Oh, you got good legs. So you, you, I don't have good legs. <laughs> Every time I get on the bike, it hurts. It's just that I drop people who weren't in a Grand Tour. Correct. <laughs> Cool, man. Thanks for the talk. I'm uh, I'm really excited to see how Steve goes for you. You're coming off a victory. Yeah. From the Rift. That was a cool race. Yeah, I bet it was That cool. was a really cool race. And, and actually, the nice thing about the Rift, and it's one of the things that I'm feeling a little bit sad about at this point, is that there's, there's some really cool gravel stuff happening in Europe, <laughs> um, but no one from the USA is coming across for it. And there's a lot of big races in the States and a lot of Europeans are coming over for it. Mm. And geographically, Iceland is actually kind of halfway between New York and London, right? Right, right. So it's like, it's like our meeting ground. It's where our tribes go to actually handshake. Uh-huh. You're like, well, we can both <laughs> settle here and yep. fight it out <laughs> like Vikings. Um, but no, Iceland Rift is amazing. It's, it's so cool. You ride around Hekla, the, one of the biggest active volcanoes in the world. Wow. And, um, it's so ugly that it's beautiful. You know, it's just all black and stone and snow and gray. Erection? Eruption! <laughs> eruption, not erection, you fool. <laughs> well, it does go up. Um, 
Well, fun fact, actually, I was driving around Iceland for a day um, with family after the race because we wanted to stay and actually do some tourism stuff because, yeah, like, why not when you're in amazing places? And we went to Geyser, which is the uh, which is the famous steam hole yeah. that comes out of the ground. It goes, goes 50 meters in the air. But Geyser is one of the only Icelandic words that is actually translated into world language. And it's actually from this one... Geyser. From this geyser, yeah. That's called geyser, but geyser is actually inactive and the ones around it are active and they go up to like 50, 60 meters in the air. Yeah. And then I actually found out um, that the biggest one in the world is actually in Steamboat, Colorado. Steamboat, which is where we're going right now. Which is aptly named Steamboat. So I'm going from one steam hole to the next. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a bike racer. You're just traveling to see geysers and steam holes. And they're really beautiful. But anyway, if if anyone is looking for like a big adventure in terms of opening their horizons and riding on what's definitely a space, a piece of space, unidentified planet, could be Mars, could be Venus, Uh could be another solar system. It's it's really amazing Go to try there. Iceland. Check it out. Yeah. But uh, pack your own food because it's like prohibitively expensive. <laughs> also, it was not that warm, was it? Uh, no, and then the coldest thing actually, there was some river crossings, but like yeah, the water actually went above your head tube. Like it was basically at your handlebar. Yeah. Um, smooth enough to ride through, like the really smooth bottom. You rode through it. So you actually rode through. Huh. Um, and, and funny story, the, the people that tried not to run the ride through, they just decided to run from the start. Yeah. Here's a little lesson. Here's a pro tip for gravel yeah. or for any river crossing. Don't put your bike upstream <laughs> <laughs> because the current would get all like caught up in the in the bike, in the bike and then and the then bike would just push the rider out. over yeah. and they kind of go like ah! like a proper swim. So like anyone that had their bike downstream could like right. pull the bike, kind of get going. Right, right. Um, but that water was <laughs> that water was literally coming off snow melt. It yeah. was cold. Yeah, and then you're like. You're getting out again, and then you got to clip into your bike, or you're, or you're still in your bike, but you just like, <gasps> yep. like your myofascial tension has just gone like to infinity. And you're like, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a cold, cold race, but awesome, awesome, awesome race. Um, but yeah, I won there, which was cool. Nice. And um, see how we go here. But I, for me, again, like to speak wholeheartedly, is that. I'm definitely here to try to win, but but that's why I'm here because I like to try to win. And and if yeah. I win, awesome. But I'll just be happy as long as I get a clean run at the race yep. and have fun trying to win. And if someone's better than me, then like high five, great stuff. Like you beat me, and nice. if I beat them, fuck yeah, nice. nice. But I I don't want to win by accident. You know, it's got to be right. got to be with Dinesh. Hey. Normally, yeah. Uh, Normally, this it surprises me how many people don't actually know that word, because my buddy Don Powell runs Panache Cycleware, and they come there like, what's Panache? Well, actually, I have to say, I'm I'm obviously sponsored by Castelli here, but I really love their stuff. They make beautiful stuff. Yeah. I love, I love how that business has just been like doing its thing for so long, and I can when I'm in Europe and I see a Panache kit. It's so distinctive. Yeah. And I see it and I'm just like, fuck it, guys. Keep doing it. I love it. Yeah. It's pretty recognizable for sure. Cool, man. Well, uh, thanks for the conversation. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for, thanks for driving to Steamboat. You bet. <laughs> it's been great to hang out with you and connect, you know? Um, we don't get that much time to hang out anymore, it seems like. 
So things are always happening. So when we turn this podcast off, we're we just gonna like not talk, or we're gonna keep talking. We can't talk on <laughs> 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 Well, should we should we do what we did before we started? We were like, <laughs> no, that's going <laughs> in. This. I told you that's the intro. That's the intro. <laughs> well, exit music, please. Ancestors, <laughs> protect me. May they protect you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I watched Hot Rod this morning. No big deal. No. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it, get on it. Hot Rod, Central Viewing. Thanks, everyone. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of Cycling and Alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues other riders, other racers, a lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for you listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.